You're listening to the Afterburn podcast, episode number one. He said, you know, hey, I was there. I remember uh, when you guys came like flying out of the weather, dispensing flares and then came around the corner and lit up the tree line. He goes, that was like one of the, the greatest things I've ever seen. And I'm like, well, you know, dude, that's what we trained for. And we're uh, there to support you. Hello and welcome to the Afterburn Podcast. I'm your host, John Waters, a former Air Force fighter pilot. Before we begin today, I'd like to thank my sponsor for this episode, Wingman Watches. Wingman Watches is a veteran-owned and operated company. Their impeccable attention to detail truly shows in each one of their timepieces, which are built right here in the United States, and I can attest to that as I own several of their watches. They're great for group customization orders. If you're a military unit, fire department, police department, law enforcement agency, sports team, whatever it might be, wants to create a custom watch, Wingman Watch is the place for you to go. Mention my name and you'll receive a discount on your custom order. If you go over to wingmanwatch.com and you find something you really like, you can use the code RAIN10, that's RAIN10, and receive 10% off your purchase. I'd also like Jello, a former F-18 pilot and host of the Fighter Pilot Podcast for helping me out with this, as well as Mr. Matt Jolly, who has been instrumental in getting this podcast up and running and guiding me through this space. You can find uh, Matt over at warbirdradio.com, where this podcast will be uh, hosted. He's also co-host of Show Center, the Air Show podcast, one of my favorites. And you can also find him over at historyworthsaving.com. He's all over the place. Again, Jello at the Fighter Pilot Podcast and Matt Jolly at warbirdradio.com. Go over and check those guys out. And finally, before we get rolling today, I would just like to say thank you for listening in. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe. Leave a review. That feedback is definitely crucial to me as I shape this podcast because it will undoubtedly evolve uh, as I move forward. But those two little things make a big difference. If you're looking for some additional content, you can swing over to Instagram at rainwaters27 for some more content. But with that said, let's get after it. My guest today is Major Tyler Leroy Schultz, a United States Air Force A-10 pilot. And on May 2nd, 2017, he would find himself in a situation that you just heard. Troops in contact. That's friendly forces on the ground that are cut off and surrounded, taking heavy enemy fire, and they need help from above. On that day, Captain Samantha Jammer Harvey and Leroy would arrive overhead in Shaddadi, Syria and ultimately save the lives of 50 U.S. troops and numerous coalition forces. Their actions would earn them both the Distinguished Flying Cross, which is awarded for heroism and extraordinary achievement during aerial flight. Listen in today to hear about Leroy's journey to becoming an Air Force A-10 pilot and the actions he took on May 2nd, 2017 that ultimately earned him a Distinguished Flying Cross. Leroy. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. I know everyone's be really excited to hear about your journey to becoming an Air Force A-10 pilot. And then like me, I'm really curious to hear about your actions on May 2nd, 2017. Before we get into all that, why don't you tell everyone a little about uh, who you are and 
what you're doing. Awesome. All right. Well, yeah, thanks for uh, having me, John. Uh, Tyler Schultz, uh, go by Leroy, as you mentioned, uh, uh, A-10 reservist right now, uh, also working for United Airlines. So I went to the academy in uh, 2003, started there. Um, after finishing up uh, school, got to Columbus, uh, Mississippi as a, as a you know training in uh, the Air Force pilot training there. I uh, had met my wife prior to leaving uh, the academy. And so uh, we got married uh, after right after pilot training, uh, blessed with four awesome little kids, uh, three, five, seven, and nine. So uh, she's definitely really busy. <laughs> and then, uh, let's see, finished up pilot training, went through the T-38 uh, for a couple years. Uh, I did MC-12s as well, uh, like you did. So I uh, have some uh, shared flying experiences there. And then uh, tracked A-10s, uh, very fortunate to uh, to get that out of out of uh, pod trader on that second round uh, with all the FAPES. And then I've uh, been doing A-10s for the last six or seven years at this point. <laughs> so you just summarized like the last half of your life in just uh, know, exactly. a, a little blip. Um, so yeah, you go to the Air Force Academy, you graduate, you get a pilot slot. You go down to Columbus Air Force Base in Mississippi like I do for pilot training. And then at the end of pilot training, you become a first assignment instructor pilot or as we uh, call it, a FAPE. So you're a FAPE there in Columbus like I am. And that after a three-year assignment there, you wrap that up and uh, you end up moving on to the A-10 and flying the Mighty Hog. But before we uh, talk about how awesome the Hog is, I really like to talk about the Air Force Academy because you just said, hey, I went to the Academy. Uh, And you made it sound really easy, but it is not an easy thing, one, to get into the Air Force Academy, and then two, uh, to graduate from the Air Force Academy. So for those who don't know, there are three commissioning sources as to become an officer in the Air Force. There's the Air Force Academy, Reserve Officer Training Corps, ROTC is what I did. And then there's OTS, Officer Training School. And that's another discussion for another day. But can you kind of allude to what you had to do, Leroy, in order to go to the Air Force Academy and how difficult it was? Right, definitely. So uh, let's see, in 95, I ended up, my family moved from Chicago to, uh, to Georgia and I was really fortunate. One of my good friends at, in uh, Petrie City's dad was an academy graduate and uh, a, a pilot as well. And I had just asked him, like, so I, I want to do that. How do I become a pilot? And he's, uh, his track was through the academy uh, as well. And so he, uh, it was funny. He told me to get a haircut because I had uh, <laughs> shaggy hair at the time. Uh, and uh, go join Eagle or Boy Scouts, become an Eagle Scout. Uh, and then, uh, he kind of walked me through the rest of the steps, you know, like staying, staying up with your grades, uh, applying to, you know, be in, uh, AP courses or those, uh, classes so that that looks good on your resume, uh, staying involved in a sport, but specifically not being like the captain of the team. Like, obviously if you can do that, that's great, but just like staying, uh, dedicated to something they want to see like, Hey, you had the, uh, the dedication to go be a boy scout, make it all the way to Eagle scout, go join a soccer team and play it for three, four years, you know, be get an, pick up an instrument, which I definitely did not do, but you know, something where they show just the dedication of, uh, Hey, you might actually stick out the Academy and make it all four years. I think that was, uh, some of the good, uh, some of the good advice that he gave. And you had some great points there. And it's kind of funny. We grew up in the same hometown and didn't know each other. We knew of each other, I guess but didn't really get to know each other until we got to Columbus many years later. Uh, but similar paths, we both knew early on what we wanted to do. Right. Uh, and we went out there and sought people who had walked that path before, sought guidance uh, to help us kind of figure out what we needed to do and how to go after it. But I think it's crucial. Anyone, no matter who you are, what age, like you have to have some kind of passion uh, that you want to go out there and pursue. We were fortunate, I think, and knew at a young age but not everyone is going to be in that same scenario. I think the takeaways are one, you have to have a passion in life and go out there and pursue it. You want to be the best at what you do, knowing that there's going to be setbacks that come along with it and hurdles, but finding a mentor, finding guidance, seeking uh, help is so crucial because if you're willing to put in the time, effort and work and the dedication to it, having someone that can kind of help you, answer tricky questions or when you get in a sticky situation is always vital. Right. So you get accepted to the Air Force Academy. That's a challenge in itself, but uh, it's a, it's a path to become a pilot and get a pilot slot out of that. 
but the tough part's not over. It really has just begun, right? Like it's not just an easy cakewalk from that point forward, right? No. So the, uh, I guess one of the benefits of the Academy over a ROTC program is they have about half of their students become, uh, uh, pilots. So they have a bunch of pilot slots. Um, and, uh, so I, I got there, like you said, doesn't, doesn't get much easier. So yeah, you finish, uh, your maybe something, not quite, a. Uh, what am I trying to say? When, once you get out of high school, you're like, oh, okay, I'm doing well. Like I got to the academy, right? And then you get there with uh, 1,200 other people who did the exact same thing. <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay. So now I'm uh, getting a C in uh, Calc 2. Like, that's not cool. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, going from like the probably the best or one of the best guys in your high school to like, sweet, you're no, you are no longer special. Right, exactly. So, yeah, it's uh, and then the the whole you know beginning of the academy is about breaking you down in basic training and making you one of the team or one of the air force and not an individual. So uh, they do a good job at uh, at assimilating everyone, if you will. <laughs> you are not special. Yeah, it's, yeah it's all, exactly. but it's all again like we're all working towards the same common goal. And, well, right. I don't realize at the time, you know, break you down a little bit to, to build you back up into the mold they want you to be. Yeah. Um, so obviously you, you work really hard throughout your four years at the Air Force Academy. You, you get a pilot's slot and then you're off to Columbus Air Force Base uh, to learn how to fly. Uh, and then for those who don't know, pilot training is about a year long, although it's going through some changes right now. I think where you can go a little bit faster, a little bit slower, where they're trying to streamline it. But out of the pilot training, um, much like me, uh, you become a FAPE, a first assignment instructor pilot in the T-38. Uh, what was it like being a T-38 instructor? Yeah, you know, honestly, at first you're, you're kind of, oh, man, I'm a FAPE. I wanted to go out and do the mission or whatever. Uh, then they send you to, to uh, Randolph and you go through instructor training for a couple of months. And you come back and I had guys that were one year uh, below me at the academy uh, that were coming through. And now I'm teaching them how to fly a plane that, I have maybe 150 hours and uh, it was, it was eye-opening. It was really cool. Uh, they definitely give you uh, a lot of rope, especially as a, um, you know, first Lieutenant and you're sitting, uh, sitting there instructing, uh, taking kids cross country, just, you know, leaning on the limited experience that you have and uh, your knowledge of what sounds right or what should be uh, correct there and, uh, and teaching. So it was pretty cool. I think you probably had a similar experience, right? With the, you know, just the, the amount of rope that they give you as such a, a young pilot is just like unheard of in, in an active squadron or an op squadron. Yeah, I think that's what and I told people, you know, when I was going through being a FAPE, you know, nowhere else, I think, in the world, are you going to be a 24, 25-year-old and get the keys thrown at you to a multi-million dollar jet and you're going to take someone who is fresh off the streets, more or less, with just a couple couple flying hours and you're going to go take them out and teach them how to fly this complex aircraft, especially the T-38, you know, the T-38, um, I got a lot of respect for, I mean, designed late fifties, sixties. Um, it's still flying today. Thing has got tiny little wings, so it's got to go really (laughs) fast. Right. And like you, I mean, you could kill yourself in the T-38 in the final turn really quick. Right. That that was uh, one of the most interesting or eye-opening portions of the uh, experience. You know, the, you remember the 38 when you go around the corner and they said, okay, when you get that little rumble on the wing, you know, that's good. That's your final turn. But when it really starts the elephants dancing on your wing, that's bad. And you're like, how do I know when an elephant's dancing on my <laughs> wing? You know, like, And why is this plane designed to shake it? You know, I think that's really cool uh, about the, the Air Force where, again, you can be a really young uh, guy or gal. And you have a lot of responsibilities placed in your hands right off the get go. Uh, and it's life or death. Like it's a serious business, even when, when you're training, because one small mistake can lead to something that's unrecoverable. Yeah. Yeah. One of my, uh, I was talking to another pilot recently about uh, configuration errors. And I remember taking off with a, a kid and we we're doing a pattern delay. So you're already taking this like, you know, minimal winged, aircraft and then you're putting it heavy weight and trying to do a pattern delay and he got behind and forgot to put the flaps down and uh, i was you know trying to keep up with him and the jet and what we're doing and didn't check the configuration and all of a sudden you get ground rush and that was one of the okay you know afterburner go around look down see the configuration like dude you didn't even put the flaps down like we can't do a no flap heavy weight like this oh man i guess you cringe 
I know exactly. Like you just kind of see those things that you're, you know, as a lieutenant trying to teach another lieutenant and you're like, Oh my goodness. Yeah. It brings you, uh, definitely makes you, uh, you know, tighten your parameters, uh, <laughs> eye opening a little bit. Right. I think yeah, that's a really good point. I, I think we've all been there. I know I've done it. It's been a couple of times in my career. And it's usually when, it, when you're rushed, that's when, it, when yeah. it always happens. Like you, your jet breaks, you step to a spare, you're trying to make it. And then like, you forget something critical. I have definitely taken off with my ejection seat, not armed. Oh yeah. Yeah. Definitely not where you want to be, but I think it drives from the fact that we all make mistakes, no matter how experienced we are. And it's how we recover from that situation. Ideally identify it quickly and then not allow that one mistake to snowball into more mistakes. It doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're flying, if you're woodworking, playing a sport, if you let one mistake affect the entire event performance action, whatever it might be, it's only going to get worse from there. Yeah. When it also makes you think about all the following steps, you're like, okay, so I was definitely a place where I was missing things. What else did I do? Or, you know, like, yeah, exactly. I think it's a testament, man. It's like, we all make mistakes. Uh, yeah. Obviously rec- recognizing those as quickly as possible and recovering from them is key. And all of them are going to be different situations, but. Right. Um, and that's a huge part I of think, our culture though, too, to, to recognize that you are going to make mistakes and, you know, hopefully share it with the team. Right. Yeah. That, that piece, I think uh, there are some communities out there that get it. And obviously it's a backbone of being a, an aviator. Uh, in the air force, especially being a fighter pilot is owning it. Cause we are like, none of us are perfect. Uh, we all make mistakes, but right. when you make a mistake is owning it. Uh, and then sharing that lesson learned with the bros. So they don't make the same mistake. And there's like a lot of people out there. I just don't think get that, you know, and the, like the fastest way to lose credibility in my mind is when you make a mistake and you try to hide it. Like yeah. people are going to find out about it. And the minute they find out about it, now your, your judgment, your trustability, all that comes into question. It's just a spot you never want to find yourself in. Yeah, for sure. And I am by no means perfect. And it's definitely one of those things that as you get older, you realize the importance of, you know, if you make a mistake to, to own it and acknowledge it. And it doesn't matter, you know, if you're a pilot, a firefighter, a mom, a dad, lawyer, whatever it might be, I think no matter who we are, we are all going to make mistakes. The trick becomes recognizing those mistakes faster and faster, learning from those mistakes. And then often the tough one that I, I struggle with is when the mistake happens and you recognize it, don't allow that mistake to affect whatever it is you're doing, which will subsequently lead to more mistakes. You got to compartmentalize it, put it away, figure out what happened later on and prevent it from happening again. And ideally you share that mistake with someone so that they can learn from it and not make the same one that you did. So the Air Force definitely affords lots of opportunities to go out there and do different things and learn. You and I had a unique experience that while we were first assignment instructor pilots, FAPES, you and I both deployed. Can you tell me a little about the uh, King Air 350, the MC-12 mission, what that was like for you and uh, some of your experiences there? It was pretty, it was cool as a young uh, FAPE, I think, to, to go out and get some of the operational side of it. Uh, but I feel like I, it was definitely a confirmation of what I wanted to do after being a FAPE, you know, because you get to experience some of the the ISR, the uh, sitting uh, in a overhead pattern and, you know, watching things develop and building the, uh, the intelligence side of it. But then uh, it was a lot more fun, I'd say, passing that information onto a, a set of Vipers or Hogs and watching them go strike it. And I'm like, hmm, that's what I want to do. <laughs> yeah, I can definitely relate. So the MC-12, I mean, it's an intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance mission. You're out there hunting people or supporting ground forces, looking for improvised explosive devices, doing a whole slew of different missions. You're in a crew plane, flying around. It was a good experience, I would say, but it definitely reaffirmed my decision or my my belief that I want to go out there and, and fly a fighter and do something different. Exactly. So you come back from the MC-12, we spend a little bit more time in the T-38 for about a year, but then you move on to the Mighty Hog, flying the A-10. Can you tell me about the, the transition to the A-10? Yeah, that was 
that was uh, pretty cool. So, yeah, I came back from the MC12, had about a year in the T38 uh, left, and then went out to Arizona, Davis Montham, uh, for the uh, upgrade in the A10, about six months of a uh, program there. Uh, there's, I think I had maybe 11 or 12 dudes in my class. Uh, it was, you know, still have some of the, you know, my greatest buddies are from that group. Cause when you, again, go through something tough, like uh, a pilot training experience and you're, uh, learning, uh, this whole new aircraft, right. And the first flight in the A10 is single seat because we don't have any two seat models. So that's, uh, you know, you get through some Sims and then you get out there and your first takeoff, it's a pretty easy aircraft to take off. I think most aircraft to, you know, they keep it on the runway and you rotate and it's great. And then you're like, oh, I have to come back and land this thing. <laughs> <laughs> Don't bring it weak. I know. I remember one of that being one of my thoughts. Like, well, now I'm airborne. I guess I got to do this. <laughs> <laughs> There's no plan B, right? Like exactly. you, you must win here. <laughs> so Leroy, you wrap up the B course and then you're off to Korea for your first assignment flying the uh, Mighty Hog, right? Right. Yeah. First assignment was Korea. And that was, uh, that's a really, um, you know, we have, what Korea, uh, Valdosta, Georgia, uh, at Moody, and then DM are the the three bases that they tend to still have that um, active duty squadrons at. And so uh, a lot of the guys as uh, told me as a fape to go to Korea because you get a lot of flying experience immediately. Uh, and in that one year, you can get a, an upgrade to kind of catch back up to your, your peer group a little bit um, from being a, a fape and uh, not flying the A-10 for those couple of years. So uh, yeah, we had a we had a great time. It was uh, an unaccompanied tour, but I brought the family out. I had uh, two kids at the time, <clears throat> and um, my wife was pregnant with our third, so she went through the experience of having a baby overseas and all that uh, international fun. Oh man, yeah, you yeah. Uh, you're racking up the IOUs. <laughs> yeah, well, especially since I went to Alaska on a red flag for like a month and a half after our third was born. So that was, that was good. Leroy, dude, you're, uh, you're nailing it, man. I don't know how you're still alive, leaving your wife with three kids, one being a newborn. And then you head off to red flag, Alaska, which is, those who don't know, a TDY, a temporary duty assignment, big exercise we do up in Alaska, which is usually a pretty good time. I mean, there's some work to be had, but, uh, I don't know if it's on the same level as leaving your wife unaccompanied in a foreign country. With a newborn, dude. I don't even know how you're still alive today. I'm impressed, and your wife is a saint. So uh, moving moving past that, but you know, Korea. Uh, I never got to go there. That is a staple for the F-16 and the A-10 community. What uh, what was Korea like? How did you did you like that assignment? Right with, yeah, with our bases out there, and the uh, it's 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 good because the uh, the squadron and the uh, the close knit like group there, the community is, is huge. And the, uh, since you don't have the other families, uh, or friends that aren't in your squadron there, right. Cause you're off in the middle of nowhere in a foreign country. Uh, you got, you build that group and it's really, uh, it was a fun experience. Yeah. I think that's one thing, you know, that we could touch on is the camaraderie of it all, because, you know, when you go through pilot training, that's a year long and you guys are just slugging it out, trying to make it, uh, make it to the end and not get crushed. But out of that becomes, you know, this bonding that you have all these people from all walks of life come together, experiencing the same, I wouldn't say miserable experience. I actually enjoyed pilot training, but it was a lot of work. Um, And so when it comes time, when you're off work, you guys are usually hanging out, the families are hanging out. So you really get a tight knit community. And for me, that was really important. I know it exists in other places in the world, but having that camaraderie, having that team there of like-minded individuals. And that was kind of the nice thing when you went to a new fighter squadron, you walked in and instantaneously you have 20 or 30 brand new best friends. And again, I think the military that exists and throughout various communities, it was something that I really liked and enjoyed. And my wife enjoyed it. Son enjoyed it. It was something to really embrace is that that camaraderie that you're bonded together through these experiences and you have all these people uh, to help you get along, get through it. It was a, yeah, it was a huge uh, factor as well when uh, we're considering getting out of active duty was, are we, are we ready to, to leave this close knit community, you know, that, that you've had for the last 10 years? Yeah, it's tough. It's tough to give up. It's, 
I don't know, once you once you're used to it, it's like I don't know what I don't know what else is out there. So um, <laughs> exactly, it definitely makes for the tough times, and you know when you're not having, uh, I guess, great experiences or through losses, deployments, things like that. Having that community definitely helps pull everyone together, and I think it's something that's fairly unique. Right. So shifting gears a little bit, now you and your team. Uh, you're down in Valdosta, Georgia, Moody Air Force Base, South Georgia. Lovely spot. I've been there once or twice. It's been about a year and a half there, actually. Um, and you're going to go out the door to support Operation Inherent Resolve. That's the fight against ISIS. So uh, that was January 2017, right? Yeah. Yeah. So January 2017. Uh, squadron deployed out to Insterlik uh, in Turkey, so right near Adana, and that was during the time frame of, uh, you know, ISIS had control over uh, northern Iraq and Mosul, and then uh, a huge, you know, group uh, amount of territory, I guess, in Syria, especially in the the Raqqa area, was kind of where our uh, deployment was mainly uh, concentrated. So, Leroy, you guys are there for about uh, five months. And you get tasked to go out on a close air support mission out to Missoula, Iraq. And I would imagine it's like most sorties you've been doing to that point. And that was kind of your expectation going out the door, something relatively benign. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, uh, it, it was almost even more so an expectation that we weren't going to do that much on uh, that day because the weather was so bad. Uh, a lot of times when we had like an overcast deck or something and we were holding high above it, you ended up not doing a whole lot because you can't provide any sensor uh, support. All of the uh, UAVs are either not flying because the weather's too bad or they can't uh, see anything, so they can't update. Uh, and you know, a lot of times the guys on the ground aren't outside uh, patrolling or doing anything because the weather's bad. So we kind of took off expecting that we were going to fight some weather, get up above the, the clouds, and just sort of uh, hold out for a couple hours. Uh, we even asked our DO, I remember, before we took off because – the icing was pretty bad at around this time of year. And uh, we had some, uh, the A-10 engines are amazing, uh, but they were getting some uh, bent fan blades and some um, some issues that we, we were, jets were coming back with uh, icing. Uh, and so we're like, hey, you're sure we, you want us to fly? Uh, it's probably not going to be much. The weather looks terrible and we're running out of uh, fan blades. And the deal, I remember it, um wolf is his call sign and he says we're a 10 pots that's what we do like copy okay all right so yeah just make sure (laughs) yeah but you know and i mean he's right because he said all right that's what we do and like okay so i was switching from uh, a night line to the early early morning line so we were taking off just before sunrise and uh heading east climb up like we planned right through the weather uh we're tracking out east to get our ingas over uh, northern Syria. And uh, I remember talking with the flight lead, who was uh, a two-ship flight lead at the time. And I was, I was an um, ops instructor pilot, but just switching to this line. So they put me with, uh, as number two to you kind of get a, a little bit of the you know, morning experience, uh, some of the just you know, shifting to the, the new line or whatever uh, is typically put the first sortie as a, as a number two. And so we're getting into the, the AR track and uh, A-10 doesn't have radar. Uh, so there's really not a whole lot of ways to get a tanker in the weather besides cornering them and getting close. <laughs> <laughs> and so I remember her asking me like, hey, any, uh, any tricks to find the tanker? I was just like, yeah, you got to put them in a corner and then get up right up underneath them and <laughs> hopefully you break out. And she was like, oh, okay. <laughs> easy, right? Yeah, easy. So especially, uh, so you just tell the, the tanker, hey, we need you in the you know northwest side of the track. Uh, you confirm altitudes, altimeters, all that. And then you start at 1,000 and you can work your way up to about 500 below uh, their track. And thankfully, we found a, a uh, open uh, you know, patch of the, of the weather. And we're able to to get some gas. The um, our our initial tasking was done to to uh, Ross Leroy, which is funny. Uh, it was definitely not named after me, which is a good thing, right? Normally, don't yeah. want stuff named after you. Yeah, no, that's uh, not a good thing. 
<laughs> so we were uh, tested just to do some Overwatch and uh, there. That was like the, the Raqqa area uh, that Roz controlled that airspace. And um, I remember she got gas first. Uh, typically, we won then two. And while I was on the boom, uh, we got a mission amends, which uh, was like a digital uh, version of sending us a, a tasking. Um, it was not very common, uh, but immediately after we got the mission amends, we got a, uh, a call saying, hey, call ready, update tasking. You guys are supporting a uh, U.S. troops in contact uh, near, and then they passed us grids and a, a quick uh, UHF frequency. And that was, I still get you know, the hair in the back of your neck stands up. As soon as they say that, that U.S. troops in contact was, uh, it was definitely one of those, uh, you know, almost out of body experiences and something that uh, we didn't expect to hear because, you know, U.S. troops weren't really on the front lines in the um, Syria or Mosul area. And uh, with the weather being like it was, uh, we didn't expect to really do much today, you know. So uh, I, I remember that being um, uh, definitely something I'm not going to forget, that that experience. Yeah, I actually had a similar experience. It was about uh, four or five months into my deployment. Uh, we were there just a few years ahead of you guys. And uh, we took off on a day where there was a sandstorm from eastern Iraq all the way to western Syria. And so we had low expectations that we were going to do anything that day just based on the fact that we couldn't see the ground. However, like during our second or third air refueling, we came off the tanker and an A-10 heard us, heard our call sign when we checked in with air traffic control. He called out to us and said that he was going to get out of the jet, that he just lost the motor. So we immediately turned trying to find him and his wingman. Uh, coordinated with various agencies, but right when we heard that, the adrenaline was through the roof. Yeah, because you know his life is on the line, and uh, you want to do everything you can to help out. So I really don't think there's anything uh, else that will get the adrenaline pumping faster than when you hear a friendly force that is in dire need and needs your help. <laughs> right, that adrenaline. It started then, and I think it ended about six hours later when I was almost back to intro. Like, yeah, dude. Uh, I mean, just hearing it, like just reminds me of my experience and hearing your story, you know, with American yeah. troops in contact, hearing that on the radio. Um, I mean, that just gets everything amped up. So you got, right. you guys get that tasking. That's, uh, and you're flying with captain Samantha jammer Harvey. Um, right. So she yep. jammer was a, was a flight lead so we got yeah we got the tasking uh she started plotting the uh the grids i'm still finishing up our you know getting gas in the weather which isn't like the easiest feat but at this point it's like the the lowest on your your priority list right you're like oh yeah i'll get gas i'll plot these grids we'll figure out what frequency where we're going like try to uh get everything uh sort of like compartmentalized into uh you know what your next step is I remember her getting on the radio, making an initial contact with uh, Arcane was the call sign, Arcane 5-3, and, um, and then me contacting Kingpin, which was like our CRC, uh, and getting <clears throat> deconfliction for our, um, basically from our tanker track to that airspace, getting all the separate uh, kill boxes around there. And uh since it was such bad weather, we basically got from surface to, I think it was 19,000 feet is what we initially had because <laughs> there was no one in the area and the weather went up to 20. So it didn't matter. Like we were, you know, no one else was up in that airspace. Um, so yeah, we get off the tanker, we start pressing there. And thankfully, um, since, you know, we're, we're not mock, we're not fast. This, uh, this grids they passed were only like 50 miles away. So from, getting that initial notification, finishing up our gas and getting over to Arcane's position, doing a weather letdown uh, and all of that. It took about 10 minutes to, uh, to get overhead. You're talking about being overhead Arcane 5-3, the JTAC, the Joint Terminal Attack Controller. And he's translating what's going on on the ground to pilot speak so that you can affect the fight there. And there's a lot going on here. Not only are you deconflicting from uh, your a, your A ten flight lead. You have the tanker there. You're trying to figure out where to go, and it's not just like a moving map in the A ten. You're having to punch in coordinates, look at maps, and figure out where you need to go. Um, balancing all that while trying to build your SA for what is going to be needed when you arrive overhead, uh, Arcane's position to help them out on the ground, and then you kind of uh, glossed over it 
but you are doing a weather letdown and you're descending <laughs> through a thunderstorm. Yeah, weather letdown, exactly. You can't see the ground. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, no big deal. Right. Yeah. We are, so we're in the weather around 18,000 feet on the tanker. Um, it, we found that little pocket of, of uh, clear air and we're sort of in and out of the weather. Uh, so I, after she got gas, she, I think, departed low from the tanker and then I was still on it. Uh, so I depart off the tanker and now it's sort of in that we're in this stack where I'm in a somewhat visual, somewhat uh, instrument trail off of her um, through the, through the weather. And then we point towards our, our next point, like I said, about 50 miles away. And as we're coordinating this, we kind of figure out what the uh, min safe altitude is uh, for the area we're going to. And you start basically just a, a descent where she goes through 15, I'm at 16, she's done a 12, I'm at 13. We just kind of step our way down uh, to get below the, the clouds and um, you know make sure you're, you're safe for that, that meet that lowest altitude that you can go down to. We ended up breaking out of the weather around 7,000 feet uh, for 7,000 feet MSL, which was about uh, six or so AGL uh, for this uh, area that we were uh, in Shadadi that we ended up supporting. Yeah. And so during this, right, you're again, maintaining deconfliction from your flight lead, descending through the weather. Now you got a pretty good idea what the train is. You got to figure out what, no kidding, you know, the, uh, you know, it's, we know it's kind of relatively right. flat out that way, but there could be some Hills. So now you can't see, there's no jip with and a 10 telling you to pull up, pull up. Um, you got ATC radio going. And now I know she's probably trying to talk to arcane five, three, the joint terminal attack controller on the ground. Exactly. And with the weather, probably his terrain and then the gunfire, it's probably pretty challenging to talk to him in order to build a picture for both of you, more flight as far as what's going on on the ground and what's needed, right? Yeah, the uh, hearing gunfire on the radio from the uh, the guy on the ground is, uh, again, another one of those experiences that when uh, you train, like we, we train so many times in the A-10 to support our troops in contact. And as the flight lead, you kind of you try to, or as an instructor, you try to build that like real realism, right? And, you know, talk with a sense of urgency and uh, maybe you're screaming at the radio. Well, when you hear it for real life and the, the real life gunfire in the background and you're, you know, trying to just internalize all of the data, you're looking at your map, trying to get a, a layout from uh, the initial point that has passed or where it's uh, located. Uh, and then that was... I said, I, I think it was uh, just a, 11 minutes. So had gone on by from the initial notification and we're sitting, you know, in the weather to being overhead uh, Arcane's position, uh, kind of building out that, that picture of his compound where he's taking fire from and uh, trying to build a nine line now so we can uh, start affecting the fight. Uh, so we got down below the weather, uh, 7,000 feet. I was in a, a trail on a jammer. Uh, we're flying over top. All we had was the uh, the location of of the friendly grids, right? So that's what we have in our system that we're steering towards. And then um, we get over top and we just start dropping out flares, do a show of force, probably around four or five thousand feet AGL, because we're still trying to pick up, you know, uh, build our our picture. And it's in the middle of a rainstorm, uh, so we just start uh, dropping off flares overhead. And uh, I I remember. As you're flying over, you know, you're dropping flares to kind of announce your presence to the to the enemy, you know, like, hey, we're here, stop shooting at friendlies. Uh, but you're also giving that to uh, to the uh, the army that's on the ground. And I got a, a text one day about a year or so after this sortie from one of the guys, uh, the army troops that found my number through something probably after the, the DFC write-up. And uh, he said, you know, hey, I was there. I remember uh, when you guys came like flying out of the weather, dispensing flares, and then came around the corner and lit up the tree line. He goes, that was like one of the, the greatest things I've ever seen. And I'm like, well, you know, dude, that's what we trained for. And we're uh, there to support you. But that was really cool that, you know, that you give that, uh, that sense of uh, uh, probably adrenaline and, uh, you know, safety almost that you're trying to just announce to the, uh, to the friendlies that you're there to hopefully protect. Leroy, that's awesome. Especially hearing that from one of the guys on the ground, the impact that you guys had that day in helping them uh, with that fight. I'd like to read a little bit from one of the awards you received. It says, uh, 
Below the weather, visibility was between one and five miles due to heavy rain, making it difficult to see the friendly position. And I can imagine everything there is brown and gray, which only amplifies how difficult it is to see. It says, despite this, Captain Harvey led the formation over friendlies in a show of force with flares to deter the enemy aggression. She visually acquired the building the friendlies were in and the field the enemy was attacking from. She immediately turned around and marked the field with a rocket so Major Schultz can get his eyes on the target area. Major Schultz was able to roll in with a 30 millimeter strafing pass with corrections from Arcane 5-3 off Captain Harvey's rocket mark. So there's a lot going on there as well. How difficult is the uh, mech in order to flip all those switches, get the aircraft in a position where it can fire rockets, can fire the gun, and affect the fight there? I know there's got to be a lot going on uh, inside Jammer's cockpit mm-hmm. as well as yours. Yeah, I mean, uh, so we're descending into the the target area. You're you're so you know you're focused on, like you said, so many things in that descent as you're trying to do all the communication uh, and find the area and then build that picture. Uh, and as soon as we overflew, uh, thankfully, the enemy had picked a tree line to shoot from, uh, and it was across a field. We had the Hemet, so the um, it's basically the little monocle that helps you know uh, put some of the things that you're seeing on your moving map uh, right in your eye. And then when you look over uh, over the rail at the ground, you can see them kind of displaced uh, on your on your reticle. So that helped. Okay, that's the building. Uh, it made sense based off of what the friendly was saying, where they were located. Uh, they were taking fire. Uh, I believe he was calling it, um, it was 45 degrees off reality, which was difficult. So um, this whole compound laid northeast, southwest, uh, but I think in his mind, it was east-west. And so he was taking fire to the south uh, in the tree line. Well, there's only one tree line, and that tree line was about 100 meters or so to his, uh, what would that be, southeast. And so we we went with it in the directions, uh, knowing where he was and knowing the tree line. Uh, that was definitely something later in the sortie we had to confirm uh, with him because his directions were about 45 degrees off of uh, what we were seeing, you know, which is... Um, but yeah, so we get to uh, do that. We're flying, do this quick circle overhead, building our, uh, our nine line, uh, for him. Cause obviously he's, you know, really busy. Uh, so we're, um, friendly location, distance direction, uh, and then thinking about, okay, fencing in, uh, typically our training is to flight lead fence in with, uh, rockets and guns. So they have the, the Willie Pete rockets to, to roll in and mark. And then the wingman is in a, deep trail or wedge position, so a mile and a half, two miles, so that after the flight lead shoots a rocket, uh, hopefully Arcane can give an update uh, off that that Willie Pete uh, white phosphorus smoke and uh, say like, oh, yep, from there, 50 meters, uh, and give you a, a direction to uh, shift your fire uh, to be effective on that first pass. And that's what it sounds like you guys did on that first pass. Yeah. She was able to shoot the rocket, and then you're able to correct off that. Exactly. It was about 50 meters or so to the north, uh, which was a, a, a northeast correction along the tree line uh, for that first shot. So again, you guys are Bore 5-1 flight. You continue to deploy 30 millimeter on enemy location, completing six total strafing runs in near zero visibility. <laughs> yeah. During those six strafing runs, you employed 30 millimeter rounds, 40 meters from friendlies, well with inside danger close distances. Um, and as you just, again, you alluded to, uh, arcane giving you directions about 45 degrees off. Yeah. That puts a question mark over your head there. Um, and the worst thing we can do is, uh, hurt friendlies. So I know, you know, just strafing and dropping bombs when you hear danger close, again, that's another one of those things. I think that just keys up the, the adrenaline knowing that, you know, what you're doing has to be absolutely correct yeah. and right because any there's no tolerance for error right like exactly inside that distance like there's errors inside the weapons that could potentially hurt friendlies and they have to acknowledge that by uh giving the ground commander's initials for danger close accepting the risk there so what was going through your mind when you guys got those initials well so so that first pass was effective we uh came off to the north and then uh you you like to try to vary your indirection uh, based off of, you know, th- this pretty large group of ISIS probably has, you know, some sort of 
uh, AAA or potentially uh, even a man pad that they can shoot at you. And so you're, you don't want to just be uh, very, you know, in from the south, in from the south, and just like predictable. Uh, we came off to the north, and then we're going to be back in from the northwest this time on another pass. Uh, she shot on the second pass. I called in, and it didn't get clearance. And again, it's something that you're like, oh, we're danger close. Um, it was, I would say, type two still because the arcane did not have the time to find us and see where our nose was pointing because he was so busy shooting back as well and running for better uh, vantage points and stuff like that. But as I rolled in, I didn't get clearance. And so I'm down final. And you're like, well, I know I'm shooting at the same area, but you're like, well, it's dangerous close. You can't, you can't fire without that clearance. So I come off and it was just his uh, his radio at the time was so busy with other things going on, uh, the ground fire, he even like lost radio contact for a while due to his batteries like getting waterlogged and uh, had to change the batteries out uh, while he was you know running around on the ground. Uh, so that was, uh, yep, like you said, just that, that danger close part and it brings in so much uh, more complexity to it. Um, we eventually split the target area north-south so she was holding on the north, I was holding on the south side of it because I couldn't keep sight of her through the weather and also help out with, uh, you know, keeping uh, like an essay on the, on the ground. So I would just have to be like tucked in almost in like a close position based off how, how thick the, uh, the rainstorm was. Um, so that she came in from the north on another gun pass is probably like our third or fourth pass and was off dry due to it uh, just couldn't see the ground. Um, so then I rolled in for the South and again, it's like, well, yeah, I want to affect the fight, but if I can't see, or I can't put the weapon down on the appropriate target. Uh, so now it was like pushing, I think I was on a 20 has, uh, pass at this point because we were down so low due to the clouds. Um, and like you said, you're just, you're driving in, you're looking for the friendly area, making sure you're, uh, you know, exactly on your target. And, uh, something interesting in the a10 you can see outside our uh, our side panels very well but the front windscreen is flat and so that will get blocked by the uh, rain so you I, afterwards watching my tape i was doing like a rudder push where you can like push to the side and you see out the side of your aircraft and then you look over your hud and you find that point uh but that was that was one of the most difficult strafe passes that i've ever made was uh you know in the weather on that 20 has and for those who don't know, has high angle strafe. So that's the angle uh, you're attacking the target at. And we have different different types of attack depending on weather and desired weapons effects and things of that nature. But you guys are working hard. And that sounds absolutely terrible having to use the rudder to strafe. So at this time in the fight, it, you guys are getting low on gas and Jammer elects to start yo-yo ops. Can you tell me a little bit about what yo-yo ops are? Yeah, so uh, I mean, obviously, our our biggest uh, our biggest priority at this point is not to leave Arcane. We're the only set of air uh, assets that he has, uh, and we don't want to leave him alone. So we um, we split up to you know keep one person on station while the other person goes and gets gas. It reduces our uh, level of uh, mutual support and protection, but uh, you know it, it doesn't leave him. And so that was uh, what we were. Uh, doing there so she goes to find the uh, tanker uh, again it's back into the, she went back up into the soup of seven to twenty thousand feet and we can't tank above 18 or 19 because we don't have enough power so uh, she jumps into the into the weather to go find gas and uh, we kind of had a little bit of a lull here that's why uh, we ended up you know getting gas at this point uh, and my priority once we started doing this was friendly battle tracking and uh, sort of like trp so um, figuring out points on the ground uh, that we both could uh, could identify and use as a, uh, a reference. Uh, and then I also talked to, uh, hey, so there's a main road that goes right through the town, and it looks like that road is northeast, southwest. And he goes, nope, I see it east-west. I'm like, okay, <laughs> like, if that's what it is, then you got to mentally shift, you know, all right, that's where we're going to we're gonna call this, but just so that we're both on the same, you know, same track. Yeah. And that's so important, no matter what career field you're in and whatever, whatever you're operating in the shared mental model, you are communicating the same language with whoever you're working with, because if you're not, 
it's not going to go well. And then you mentioned TRP at target reference point. So identifying something that is on the ground that you can adjust fires from, i.e. that tree line that you were talking about, something that you can quickly see uh, both you from your A-10 and the JTAC on the ground, and you can quickly correct from that point. I don't want to gloss over what Jammer's doing, but I'm going to do that. She's off to the tanker and she's working. Coming from a plane that has a radar, I can fully appreciate the amount of effort she's putting in with no radar and no interrogator to try and help her find the tanker with all the weather that she's doing. But while she's off to the tanker working, you're also working, again, trying to build that shared mental model, that common operating picture with your customer on the ground, the, the JTAC there. Well, yeah, so during this time, uh, we're building our picture, and uh, Arcane's starting to take a little bit of fire from the north, uh, and they, they call it a cupola, uh, or maybe it's a cupola. I'm not exactly sure how you pronounce it, but it's a, basically a little like outhouse-type setting on the top of a building. But like you said, all the buildings are brown, and they all look the same, and they all have cupolas or cupolas, whatever you want to call it, on the rooftops. And so I'm trying to get contact for this um, and eventually get uh, Arcane to build a nine line uh, and passes uh, that for one of these rooftops. Uh, meanwhile, when he is building this nine line, you hear him running and you, you can tell by his voice and how, you know, he's <laughs> breathing on the radio and you're like, wait, this dude is actually running from a, a building, you know, towards the fire that he's taking uh, to go get a better vantage point so he can help call in fires for it. Like it's, it's crazy to see, the uh, you know the JTAC position and what he does or brings to the fight you know to help uh, help support his troops. Yeah, those dudes are some incredible human beings. Uh, I have so much respect for them. Exactly. That is not a, not an easy job. Like anyone on the ground there. Period. Um, but that too, like just being able to communicate what's going on, on the ground and translating it to pilot speak, so we can figure out how we can help best. So during this time, like he's right. starting to run, the fire's picking up. Uh, and then the largest attack kind of kicks off with heavy machine guns, small arms fire, RPGs, and suicide vest. You're able to visually acquire tracer rounds come uh, from a nearby field, and you quickly employ 30 millimeters on that location. The fire intensified, um, and they began to zero in on the friendly position. And now you're hearing arcane, you're hearing explosions and gunfire over the radio, which again, I think is just amping up the adrenaline, or at least it would be for me. Right. And you go in and you stray four more times, despite the visibility getting uh, continually to deteriorate. So in that in that short period of time, and you go back in uh, to to strafe one more additional time, repelling the attack uh, while Jammer is off to the tanker. So a real busy point uh, for you here. And again, no 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 real mutual support for you. You're alone and afraid, just trying to help out the guys on the ground right. as best you can. So uh, a busy little period, right? Yeah. So, and it all, it all, it was crazy because he was building this up, um, trying to find this couple of, trying to, you know, give me a nine line, you know, moving closer to that fire to try to help uh, identify it. I rolled in for like the Southwest over the shoulder of the friendlies. So uh, it's one of the, the calls you make for, you know, helping him identify where you're rolling in from and also passing that. I see where you guys are. I'm uh, coming in from the Southwest. So yeah, so we're rolling in and, um, I, I stray from the Southwest. And like you said, right as that hit off, they, they were planning their next attack uh, from the, the East or Southeast and along that tree line. And everything just kicked off. You hear the radios uh, light up and you see the whole tree line and the, the way that the weather was and the atmosphere uh, was there. You could pick out the, uh, the muzzle flashes really well. And so I just see this whole tree line light up and uh, from where we had strafed on our, our previous attacks. And so come off target from there. And, uh, and his radio call, you know, he says, we're taking fire from the south, the southeast. We need immediate gun run uh, from uh, on that, that southeast position. Um, and so I, uh, I read back, like, okay, you need, a, you need a gun run to the southeast. Confirm how far uh, to the southeast. And he's like, along the tree line. I'm like, perfect. Again, so I, I read back a, a nine line sort of that I'd made, uh, made up as I'm uh, circling around to the west. And uh, then, yeah, four more gun passes. And every one of them, it was just, okay, I, I see a position. I read it to him. Yep, that's it. Uh, in from the west uh, on that. And as I'm climbing up after each pass, 
I'll just like look over the shoulder uh, of the jet and I could pick out another set of muzzle flashes in the area. And then he would talk me on, yep, I need you about 30 meters east, 30 meters west, uh, whichever it is on those and then just uh, continue employing there. So it's about a five minute span of like five gun passes around that area. Leroy, talk about a simple solution to fix that problem there. Picking that tree line and adjusting your fires from there, you know, it's sometimes a simple solution that's the the best solution. Having that tree line there and then adapting and adjusting because there's nothing in your training. You didn't roll in that day knowing you're going to have a tree line, but adapting to the situation that you're dealt with exactly in order to affect its outcome is vital. Yeah. Like you said, tree line, it's all, it's just that TRP something. There's a, a field, a tree line, another field to the north. And once you kind of build your picture and you share it with the JTAC, that it and just made it so much easier to, to lock in on a spot uh, when the, the weather was, uh, you know, that mile and a half, two mile viz, uh, you know, mesh of, of crappy weather. Dude, yeah, you're working here. So you, you repel that attack. And then, uh, you're probably getting a little low, low on gas jammer gets back to the fight. Now it's your turn to, uh, go off to the tanker. Yeah. Uh, I pass the, uh, the two nine lines and what, uh, are, you know, the updates to our, uh, our friendly positions and then, um, am off into the weather. And then once I got up to the, the altitude and I had been working my, my numbers for the, uh, divert to Diabaka, which is like our closest, uh, rescue base in, um, uh, in Turkey. Uh, but when I got up to altitude and knew I was in the soup and looked at my gas again and knew I didn't really have much to spare, I was like, all right, guys, I'm diverting to Albuquerque. You come find me, please. And so I had them overfly me. And uh, I was about, I think I was 17. They were 18 or 18, 19. I worked myself up to 500 feet below them. And it was just this, this little hole in the weather and you see the boom sticking out of it. And I'm like, Stop. And then I remember the guy in the the uh, the 135. He goes, "I've never worked that hard to to find a a refueler or find a you know uh, an A10 or uh, somebody to get gas." And I just laughed. I was like, "Well, I appreciate it because you you made my job pretty easy. I just diverted and you came and found me." <laughs> Talk about yeah, dude. I, and I know you're laughing about it now, but you know you're over enemy territory. You've just been in a big firefight, and you're now worried about being able to make it back to a safe spot. So, you know, like the stress is not let up, but that's pretty incredible that, uh, able to facilitate that. And, you know, hats off to the tanker crew, you know, those guys definitely had some downrange that they would bend over backwards to make it happen. Exactly. Um, So, uh, without them, none of it would be possible. So, uh, it's always nice. Like that's a big, that's a big sigh of relief when you hook up to the tanker there. (laughs) Oh, geez. Yeah, that was, that was huge. Uh, meanwhile, I had my other radio still monitoring what JAMA was doing, and you know another attack started, and she was you know IDing RPG fire and rolling in on her on her own as well. So it was like, you know, you hear the I, all I wanted to do is get back into the fight, but at the same time I was about to divert and completely leave her out there, you know. So it was one of those like, all right, I need gas, please. <laughs> Leroy, you and JAMA did some incredible work there. And it's a testament to the training that you had preparing for what was potentially out there and what would come while you're back home training, but then your ability to adapt to a dynamic situation, being flexible, and then applying some simple solutions, what would seem like a very complex problem. And it is a complex problem. You got people who are shooting and it's dynamic on the ground. And again, it's just, it's a testament to, to your training and your preparation that go into it. But during that period, you, you guys uh, were on station for five hours uh, supporting troops in contact, two and a half hours doing yo-yo ops back and forth. Between you and Jammer, you both expended 1,500, round, or 1500 pounds of ordnance and over 1,300 rounds of 30 millimeter, eliminating 19 ISIS targets and 83 ISIS fighters. And your actions, uh, along with Jammer that day, are true to saving 50 American lives and countless coalition partners which again, uh, earned both you and Jammer the Distinguished Flying Cross for your actions that day, which is, again, hats off to the professionalism and the airmanship of both you and Jammer for everything that you guys did to prepare for that day and your ability to take that training 
and apply it in a, in a tough situation and save lives. Well, Leroy, as we wrap up our conversation today, I definitely think there's some key takeaways here. Hard work. No matter what you do, it's going to require hard work. If you want to be the best at it, you got to get after it, push through it, be dedicated. You're going to make mistakes and that's okay. So long as you learn from those mistakes and fix them for the next time. And then when you do make a mistake, don't let that snowball. Don't let that one mistake affect the rest of the situation or the rest of the environment that you're dealing with right then in the moment. And then be adaptive. Sometimes a simple solution can solve your problem. But every scenario is going to be dynamic. It might be extreme like the situation you were faced with that day. But ultimately, be adaptive. Roll with the punches. Come up with solutions. Solve the problem. Leroy, thanks again for joining me here. Uh, it was great catching up with you and look forward to staying in touch and seeing what you accomplish awesome. in the next 10 years. Yeah, dude, def- definitely. It's been fun. Well, thanks again for joining me on the Afterburn Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please head over to wherever you're listening, hit subscribe and leave me a review. Again, that makes a difference for me. And if you're looking for additional content, head on over to Instagram at rainwaters27. I'll be back in two weeks with another guest and another podcast. But until then, don't bring a week.